Open your Bible, please, to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, a little bit more than halfway through your Bible, and if you'll just open it there to chapter number 2, I'd like to speak today on God's outline of, general, of Gentile world history, and this is such an important prophetic chapter. One-third of your Bible is prophecy. It deals with the future. And of all the passages that deal with prophecy in the Bible, this is one of the more important ones. I tell you, this chapter, you will see when I finish, I hope, you will see how important it is, how relevant it is even today. And so open your Bible there. I'll not have you read quite yet. Let me give you a little background here on this passage. The man who wrote this is Daniel the prophet. Daniel was a member of the royal family of Israel. And when the Babylonians came and took the nation captive, then uh, Daniel was in that first group of captives, about 10,000 people. They were the royal seed. They were the people that were the leaders of the nation that uh, Nebuchadnezzar the king took down to Babylon. And so Daniel was a young man at this point, only probably a teenager, about 17, 18, 19 years old. Interesting thing about Daniel, Daniel is the only man in the Bible other than our Lord Jesus Christ about whom there is not one single recorded sin. Now, it doesn't mean he never sinned because all have sinned, right? But he lived such a godly life There is not one recorded sin mentioned about him in his entire lifetime. And he went down there to Babylon as a teenage boy. His his potential was recognized by the Babylonians, and so they began to train him to be one of their bureaucrats, if you will, to serve in the government. And he worked his way all the way through until he became what we would call today the prime minister, second in power only to the king. So an incredible lifetime of success and accomplishment was enjoyed by this man. He served under four different kings. He lived throughout the entire 70-year captivity. He never went back to Israel, but he was there the entire time from the captivity, the beginning of the captivity until the Jews began to go back and migrate to Jerusalem. And he was a prophet, a divine gift, a calling that not very many people had, but he certainly was one of the great prophets. The book that he wrote here, the book of Daniel, is one of the most important books prophetically in the Bible, probably second only to the Revelation itself. In chapter 2, we have the outline of Gentile power throughout the entire time from the Babylonian captivity until the end of time to the coming of Christ. In chapter 7, we have an outline of Jewish world history. In chapter 9, this is the most incredible prophecy in the entire Bible in in chapter 9. In Daniel 9, it gives us the year of Christ's birth. It doesn't say, you know, uh, 5 AD or something like that. But it tells us through events the very year that the Lord Jesus will 
will come. And more incredibly than that, it tells us the very day that Jesus Christ will die. Did you know the Bible prophesies that? To the day, if there's any skeptic that doesn't believe the Bible, all he needs to do is, is listen to Daniel chapter 9, and he'll find out that the very day was predicted 500 years before Christ lived, the very day of his crucifixion. The key to, the, also about the, the book of Daniel, it's the key to understanding Revelation. A lot of people tell me, well, I just don't understand the Revelation. Usually those people tell me the Revelations. And if you call it Revelations, I know you don't know anything about it. It's the Revelation. There was just one. There are not many. Amen? Don't call it the book of Revelations. It, it makes you sound uninformed. So the book of Revelation, though you, it's hard to understand. I don't think you can understand the Revelation until you first understand the book of Daniel. They are to be studied together. And it's one of those books in the Bible that, boy, the devil hates it. He has taken aim and leveled his guns on the book of Daniel like few other books. The liberal critics, we call them, have attacked the book of Daniel like few other books. And the reason for it is the prophecies are so specific, particularly about the period of time, the 400 silent years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Daniel's prophecies tell exactly what, were, what was going to happen among the Jewish people during that 400-year period. And they're so accurate and so precise that the critics who don't believe the Bible said, well, nobody could ever be able to predict that accurately, so that must have been written later. So if you read a lot about religious criticism and religious literature even, you will find a lot of people say, oh, the book of Daniel couldn't have been written almost 600 years before Christ. It had to be written later because of what it says about that intertestamental period, that period between the old, the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. It's also unique for another reason. In chapters 2, verses, or 2 through 7, if you read the chapter that we're going to begin here in a moment, and you read chapter 2 through chapter 7, it's written in Aramaic. And that makes it unusual because all of the Bible is written, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, the, the New Testament's written in Greek, but Daniel chapter 2 verse 7 is written in Aramaic, an entirely different language that uh, Daniel spoke and was the language of the palace of that day. So with all that in mind, let's just stand, if you will, with me as we read God's Word, Daniel chapter 2, and uh, we're going to begin in verse 1 and just follow as I read. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar the king dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. And the king commanded to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. These are people who were supposed to be wise, maybe even understood the future. So he called all these wise people in to show the king his dream. 
And so they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I've dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. Have you ever dreamed a dream and forgotten it the next day? That's what happened to the king here. And so he said, the thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream, though, and then give me the interpretation, and boy, nice guy here, you will be cut to pieces and your houses will be made a dunghill. You better come up with this dream. <laughs> well, and if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, you're going to receive a lot of money and rewards and honor and so on. So go down to verse 10. Well, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on the earth that can show the king this matter. Therefore, there is no king or lord nor ruler that ask such things of any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. It's a rare thing that the king requires. There is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And for this cause, the king was angry, and he was furious, and he commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon, and the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. Now, that would include Daniel in that number. So now there's a death sentence out on his head. And we go now, and uh, I'll just go ahead, and I'm not going to read the rest of it, so you may be seated here, and I'll just pick up and go through the chapter, and because it's a long chapter, I don't have time to read it all, but you've got a good background of it now. So let's think about that dream of Nebuchadnezzar. He has this dream. This is important to these ancient people because the ancients all believed in that part of the world that a dream was prophetic that a dream was very, very significant, that if you dreamed a dream, that the events that you would have dreamed about are going to come true. So this really, no wonder the king was troubled at this point. And he couldn't remember what the dream was. And so that really worried him. So he calls in all the wise men in the kingdom, and he says, I want you to tell me what I dreamed. And they said, King, we can't do that. No, nobody ever expected that. Now, you tell us the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. He said, oh, no, yeah, you're just stalling for time. If you were truly a wise man and knew what you were talking about, you would give me the dream, and you would give me the interpretation of it. And if you don't, there's going to be a death sentence on you because you're all a bunch of frauds. You're fake. And so everybody went home worried about what was going to happen. Verse 17 now. Daniel went to his house. He made known the thing to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Those are better known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, same three guys. And he, he wants them to pray with him that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning the secret. And so Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then after he prayed, was the secret revealed to Daniel in a night dream, and God blessed, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. 
And he says in verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. And He changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings. He setteth up kings. God is sovereign. God is in control of the political events of this world. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to them that know understanding. He reveals deep and secret things to people. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. And I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might, and made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. And so David, or Daniel, pardon me, prays to God to reveal the dream to him. Now, here's the thing. Daniel prayed. God, tell me what this dream is about. God revealed it to him in a, in a dream. So he now has a dream. Let me ask you a question. Does God know the future? Does God, is God able to reveal the future? Does God write history before it ever occurs? Does God know the political events the events of this world that shape our lives? Well, sure He does if you believe what we believe here. If you believe the Bible, you believe that. that but one-third of your Bible is prophetic. God knows the future, and He wants you to know it. And so He revealed it to, to Daniel here in this dream. Let's go down to verse 31 now and uh, try to get through this dream in a little bit more detail. Daniel is now standing before King Nebuchadnezzar, and here's what he says, Thou king sawest, and you beheld a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before you, and the form thereof was terrible or awesome, overwhelming. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. And then you saw a stone cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces. And they became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away, just blew them away. There was no place found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. A global government. In the Bible, mountains are often symbolic in prophetic literature of governments. And so, this is saying the stone became a government, and the government filled the whole earth. And so here's the dream, the dream of this image, and it has a head of gold. The head is gold, the most precious of metals. Can you all put that up for me? The head, okay. The head is gold. The chest and arms are silver. The belly and the thighs are brass, and the legs are of iron down to the feet and the toes. 
And when you get down to the feet, it's not pure iron, it's iron and clay that are mixed together. And then he sees this stone made without human hands that rolls over the feet and breaks them to pieces and crushes the entire image, and the wind blows it away. It's just powder, and the stone becomes a mountain. Now, go to verse number 36, and Daniel says, that's your dream. And the king said, wow, I'm glad you gave me the dream. What did it mean? And look in verse number 36. This is the dream And Daniel says, I will tell you the interpretation thereof. And he said this to the king, Thou, O king, art a king of kings. The God of heaven hath given you a kingdom and power and strength and glory. And wherever the children of men, wherever there's population on the earth, where the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air fly and live, God has given all that into your hand. You're ruler over everything in the whole world, the world that they knew about. And you are the head of gold. And so we come to the interpretation of the dream. You are the head of gold, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And and that Babylonian empire, one of the greatest perhaps the most powerful empire in its day that ever has been in all of human history because Nebuchadnezzar had absolute total authority over everything and everyone under his, in his dominion. Go over to chapter 5 with me for a moment. The Babylonian empire ended chapter number 5 and verse 30. It ended under Belshazzar, the next king after Nebuchadnezzar. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain after he had that drunken party you remember described in chapter 5. And Darius the Mede took the kingdom, being about 62 years old at the time. And so the Babylonian empire passed away. The head of gold moves down to the next point in history, the next empire, chest and arms of silver. And that is represented, of course, by the Medo-Persians. There's two arms to this kingdom, the Medes and the Persians together. And we now have a new kingdom in history. That kingdom endured for about 200 years. And then if you will look, well, I I won't show you the the Scripture verse on it, but in 331, that kingdom was conquered then by the Greeks. And so we move down the image, and as we move down the image, we go from Babylon, the head of gold, the purest of the metals. We move from the gold to the silver to the Medo-Persian Empire, we know from history this was fulfilled. This, was, this is historical fact. Then we move down to Greece. And the belly and the thighs are bronze or brass. And there we have another kingdom under Alexander the Great. And you know a little bit about him from ancient history. He conquered the whole world by the time he was 33 or 34 years old. And then he died. He died a drunken Uh, wreck of a man, a man so great, one of the greatest in all of history, destroyed himself, was an absolute drunkard in the worst case of the word. 
And in three uh, in 331, he had conquered the Medes, and now the Greeks are in control again for about 200 years. Each of these reigned for about 200 years. Notice something else. As you move down the image, the metals lose value. Gold is the most valuable. Silver is the next. Then you'd have bronze, and then you go down to the legs, and they're iron. So it becomes of less and less value. It becomes heavier, though, or it's heavier at the top than it is at the bottom. So the image is top-heavy. If you're ever going to knock it over, it's just going to fall because gold is heavier than silver, which is heavier than bronze, which is heavier than iron. But iron is the strongest of the metals. They weaken in their strength as you go up. Gold is very malleable. It can be stretched and moved around easily. And iron, of course, is very hard and very strong. Each of that, those have great meaning for us. So we're going down this image, and we're seeing the course of history. The oldest, the most ancient is Babylon, followed by the Medes and the Persians, followed by Greece, and then followed by Rome. The third kingdom, Greece, fell to Rome somewhere between 100 and 150 B.C. And in verse number 40, we'll read about it. Let's back up to verse 39. After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, as silver is to gold, and then a third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And then the fourth kingdom, this is now Rome, will be strong as iron. And they talked about in ancient history, they referred to the iron legions of Rome rolling over the other nations. And you know Rome grew by conquest, and they went over one nation after the other, destroying them in turn, until Rome ruled over the known civilized world. It was the biggest geographic uh, domain of any of the kingdoms that I'm talking about today. In 364 AD, after Rome had been a Republic for many, many, uh, well, about 400 years, 350 years or so. The Roman Empire divided into the eastern and western as pictured by the legs. So now we're down into the legs of the image, and they rep that represents the Roman Empire, east and west. One capital in Rome, the other in Constantinople and Turkey today, and two branches of the empire. However, Rome has never ceased to exist fully. Unlike the other nations, they're gone. There's no, not a single vestige of their existence remaining upon the earth. But that's not true of Rome. You say, where does Rome exist today? Rome exists in Western civilization, basically. If you, if what we call Western civilization encompasses all of Europe, which basically was the seat of Roman power, but it also includes the nations that came out of Europe, like the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, nations like that, the children of the, uh, of the old Roman Empire. And the vestiges of the Roman Empire remain with us today, particularly if you go to Europe. If you go to Europe, you're going to travel on a road that probably is a Roman road. They've just repaved it numerous times. 
They moved water through aqueducts that were built by the Romans in Europe, even, this, even today. They obey Roman laws, which still exist. And they have a senate. We have a senate here. There's a Roman church. I mean, there's many, many different ways in which the Roman Empire still lives in Western civilization today. It, Rome has never really ceased to exist. Now go down to verse 41 with me, though, and we move now from the past in the, in the image. We move to the feet, and the feet are future. The feet are future. So now get, get your bearings with me. There's lots of, I'm throwing out information too fast, I know, but I want you to get this. You have the Babylonian Empire represented by the head of gold, the most ancient of the empires. You have the Medes and the Persians that followed them, the chest and arms of silver. You have Greece, the belly and thighs of bronze. And when Greece was conquered by Rome, then you have the Roman Empire, and we're down now to the feet and the toes of the image. Let's read what it says about them, beginning in verse number 41. And whereas you saw the feet and the toes, a mixture of potter's clay and iron. Now, you know that iron and clay will not mix together. That's, you don't, that's just common sense, isn't it? They don't adhere. And the kingdom will be divided because it's clay and iron. It's going to fall apart in its unity. But there shall be in it the strength of the iron, for as much as you saw the iron mixed with miry clay, ceramic clay, we would call it today, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, the kingdom will be partly strong and partly broken. The iron will be strong, but the clay will be weak, of course. And whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they will not cleave one to another. There will never be any unity in the end times as there was in the beginning, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And so you have here this prophecy that Rome is going to deteriorate, but is still going to remain the iron parts of it will remain, but there's a mixture now with clay. The clay is brittle. It will break. It will never really adhere to the iron. And so there will not be true unity as there was with the pure gold, the pure silver, the pure brass. And then notice what happens, beginning in verse 44 here. In the days of those kings, so there's Ten kings here, represented by the ten toes. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. God will set up his kingdom. Mark that in verse 44 in your Bible. Underline that. And how's it going to be? How's God going to set up this kingdom? He's going to set it up in one day. It's going to be an instantaneous setting up of that. And go to verse 45, because you saw the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, meaning 
supernatural. This, this had nothing human to do with it. The virgin birth of Christ, Christ coming from heaven, nothing to do with human hands about him. And he is the stone. Christ is the stone. So circle that in your Bible there and make your notation. Who is this stone that comes rolling down and crushes these clay feet here, iron and clay feet? Well, the stone is Jesus Christ, and we find that out in the book of Matthew chapter 21. And look up there, and just you can read it before you can look it up. The stone, Jesus said, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who is the stone that rolls down and crushes the feet of the image, and the image then falls on its face and is crushed by the stone kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, He crushes all of these former kingdoms, everything that man has accomplished governmentally and politically in all of history, and He sets up an entirely new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And notice what it says about it here in verse 45, you saw the stone cut out of the mountain without hands. It broke in pieces, the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, all the kingdoms of the past. The great God hath made known to the king what will now come to pass hereafter. This is prophetic. This dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. And God must have done a powerful work in the heart of old Nebuchadnezzar here. Look in the next verse. He fell on his face and he worshiped Daniel. He commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. And the king answered Daniel and he said, of a truth it is that your God is the God of gods and a Lord of kings, a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. You know what Nebuchadnezzar did? He believed that half the Baptists in America don't believe today. He said, God knows the future. He has revealed the future, and I believe what God said about the future. As a lot of Baptists don't even believe in the prophetic portions of the Scripture, sadly. But Nebuchadnezzar said, it's obvious God is all over you, Daniel. You have revealed the truth of the future, what shall be hereafter, it says over there, I think, in verse number 45. So the stone, Christ, is going to appear. Without human hands divine, of divine origin. Look with you, if you will, too, in verse 44. His kingdom will not pass away. His kingdom will never be destroyed. It will stand forever. He says it twice. And his kingdom will consume all the other kingdoms of the earth. And so we can deduce from this when that's going to happen. That stone is going to come at the end of a period of time when ten kings are reigning in what was formerly the old Roman Empire. Ten toes equal ten kings over ten kingdoms, ten nation states. 
And so at that time, the stone appears. Now, Daniel gives you the big picture, chapter 2 and, and, and chapter 7. If you want the details, then you'll have to study the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, you'll see the details filled in, particularly in chapter 13 and 14. Because there you're going to find out that at the time of those ten kings, there's going to be one king that appears who takes power over the other ten. First of all, he destroys three of them. And then ultimately he destroys the other seven of them. And so in the future, hasn't happened yet, there's going to be a resurgence, a revival, if you will, of the Roman Empire, the former Roman Empire. A revived Roman Empire of sorts will appear. It'll have ten nations. Or, by the way, do you know that some of the people in the um, global reset movement now have said, We're, we need to divide the earth into ten regions. Ten regions. Isn't it interesting why they picked ten regions? They've already made the plans. You can read it in their book. We're going to divide the earth into ten regions in the future. We're going to do away with nation states because nation states are who causes wars. And so if you want peace, you've got to do away. You've got to have global governance. That's the new buzzword now, global governance. And so the beast empire will arise under a man we know, we call him the Antichrist. It will arise during the seven-year period of the tribulation period. At the first, he will come as a peacemaker. In the middle of the tribulation, he will set himself up in the, in the newly built Jewish temple on the mount in Jerusalem, and he will demand the world worship him. He will institute a new economic system. You'll have to have his number in your head or in your hand, or you can't buy or sell anything. You know this. And then not only will he have an economic system, he'll have a political system. He will be ruling and reigning a global government. And then thirdly, there will be a religious, a universal religion, a one-world religious practice. And ultimately, it will lead to the worship of him and then ultimately to the one who gives him power to Satan himself. Now, why would I want to preach on this? Last week, I preached to you on the gospel. I tried to make the gospel so simple, so plain, so easily understood that nobody could ever, ever miss it because I just feel right now people just need to be reminded over and over the purity of the gospel itself. Everything in our church has to be gospel-saturated. But there's got to be an urgency about that. It's one thing to have the message and to sit around lackadaisical about it. It's something else to have the message and have a fire in our belly, an urgency that we've got to get this message out there. And so why would I preach on this this morning following that message last week because I want you to understand that the stage is being set right now as you and I sit in this building. The stage is being set 
for a global government. The pieces are falling into place so fast. I mean, this is my thing. I read about this. I study this. I I know what I'm talking about on this. I'm reading the newspapers. I'm reading the news sources that will tell me this. And it's dizzying how these pieces are falling together so fast. The stage is, is being set. The stage is almost ready. The World Economic Forum just met in Davos, Switzerland. They meet there. They met there every year since the 1970s. A man named Klaus Schwab is the founder of that. He was a German economics professor. And the 4,000 people, by invitation only, the richest, the most powerful, the rich and famous go there. They fly in in their all in their private jets to save fuel, to save the planet. And they meet there for several days in February, and you hear little bits and pieces of it, but you don't know all that's going on, nor do I. Much of it is very, very secretive. And they plan the future of the world. And so Klaus Schwab wrote the book, The Great Reset. Now he's got another book out. And he's revealing the direction they're going. And boy, when you read his book and you see what is happening in America and around the world, it's, it's, it's coming together like a jigsaw puzzle. The pieces are just fitting one here, one there, and all over the place, just coming together. And so you have the World Economic Forum, and then you have the World Health Organization. Notice the word world. You have the World Bank. You have the World Court. You have the UN. You have trends. And this week, I was reading an article about digital currency. The plan now is to do away with cash. I never thought of this. You see, cash gives you freedom. When you have cash in your pocket, you can do what you want to do up to the value of the cash. But when you no longer have any cash, you don't have any freedom. And the plan now is to make all money digital. And so your deposit goes into your bank account, and you have your card or whatever means they're going to plan to use, and you debit your account. And then another deposit goes in. The only problem with that is somebody else is now in control of your money. In fact, they could even hit a button on a computer and you don't have any money. Hang on to your cash. I met a family over here a while ago in the, when we were having our fellowship, and the little boy's name is Cash, and mother said, we always have cash. <laughs> Hang on to cash, I'll tell you that. If you've got a little bit of uh, slip it somewhere where nobody can find it, I guess, or maybe they'll just outlaw it. Who knows? The governor and the legislature of the state of South Dakota two weeks ago met in the legislature 
And they passed a bill that they will not allow digital currency in the state of South Dakota. Now, can they enforce that? Nobody knows if they can enforce it. But the trend is a cashless economy. Why a cashless economy? Because read Revelation 13. And you're not going to even need the digital. You're just going to need the back of your hand or your forehead for your account. Why do we have an open borders policy? Why don't we do something? Why is it that the president and the administration just, you can walk across our borders? Now, not only the southern border, but now they're saying the northern border as well. People from 153 countries have now entered the United States, just walked in. We don't know who they are. We don't know what their plan is. Why doesn't somebody do something? I'll tell you why. Because they're committed to a global world order. The left in this country is committed to a one-world global governance. That's their term. They use it over and over. The World Health Organization, Matt Staver of the Liberty Council, I get a blurb from him every day, usually wanting money, but every day. He's a fine lawyer, a Christian, used to be up here at Liberty University teaching. And here's what he said this week. The Biden administration is pushing to give the World Health Organization control over all health care technologies to determine what is essential to control treatment and injections, personal protective equipment, trade, travel, and to enforce quarantines and isolation measures. In May, President, the president intends to make a commitment to the World Health Organization. Basically, he would be turning over the sovereignty of the country in the event of a pandemic. Now, they're already telling us there's going to be another pandemic. And you know how accurate they were in the first one. Uh, just, we just need Dr. Fauci to come back and help us out here. He retired, but you know how accurate he's been. You say, preacher, you sound like you believe in conspiracy theory. No, I believe in reading comprehension. <laughs> I don't need a conspiracy theory. You know, the old ones have all hap already happened anyhow. We do need some new ones, don't we? No, I need my Bible. And Daniel told me exactly what would happen from the time he was on earth until the coming of Jesus Christ. And he said, the Roman Empire is going to hang around in various little minor forms. It's going to be weak, and it's going to turn into clay and iron mixed. And somewhere way out there through the tunnel of time I see in the future, the Roman Empire will morph into ten kingdoms under ten kings. And then one of them will become a horn, he calls it in chapter 7. He will defeat the other nine. He'll take over. And that's what he told us. In fact, in chapter 7, he tells us a lot about that king.
And then we go to the book of Revelation, and it tells us even more about it. And it tells us that king will be the Antichrist with a political, economic, religious, global system. And then, doesn't end there, praise God, the stone comes out. And he rolls down and he hits that ten kingdom foot, feet. He crushes them. The beast, the image falls to the ground. The stone kingdom rolls over that and turns it into powder. The wind blows it away and he sets up his kingdom and the kingdom grows and grows and grows and grows till it fills up all of the earth. The kingdom of God occupies the planet. Then we have global government under the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Amen? That's what the Christian faith, that's where the Christian faith is moving. That's where the world is moving. Turn quickly. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 in your Bible. And I want to show you verse number 42 this morning. Jesus said unto the people in his hearing, Have you never read in the Scripture the stone the builders rejected, speaking of himself, their rejection of him, the same is become the head of the corner, the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So listen today, ladies and gentlemen. If you are a believer, if you know Jesus Christ, if you love the Lord today, the future is not dark. Oh, what's going to happen to this world is dark because it's going to have to be judged by God. But the future is not dark for the believer. The future is wonderful. We know exactly what's going to happen because Daniel doesn't mention this at all. But the rapture is going to come, and Christ is going to come for his own. He said, you were not designed for wrath. I'm going to take you out of here before the tribulation period ever starts, and then all this is going to break loose, these ten kingdoms and the Antichrist reign and all of that. So listen, do you know the stone? Have you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Last week, I emphasized the gospel that he died for your sins. He was buried in the tomb. He rose again for our sake. And the Bible says that if we put our faith and our trust in him, that we will have eternal life. We'll be qualified to go with the Lord in the rapture. We'll be resurrected at the end of the tribulation and to be a part of the kingdom with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. i tell you, it's a great day for the Christian today. It's a great day for the Christian. And go over to chapter 24 now, and you're in Matthew, and verse 44. Therefore, and Matthew 24 is another great prophetic chapter, be ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. So if what I've preached to you is true, then you back off and know the rapture occurs Prior to that, and the key question this morning as we leave, Christian, is are you rapture ready? 
Are you ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus? Will you bow your head with me at this time, please?